Good morning, everyone. Good morning, those who are joining us online. I'm ready just to dive into the Word of God. But before we do so, I have a question. How many remember physics class in high school? How many took physics in high school? How many wish they didn't take physics in high school? <laughs> well, my dad, hey, I have to admit, it's hard to preach after Pastor Bonnie with all her illustrations and object lessons. So she set the bar high. So before even going to high school, my dad taught me physics. My mom was a worrywart, and she did not want her son to use an axe when it came to splitting wood. So, Dad taught me a principle in physics. You get a wedge, you get a sledgehammer, you put it right there in the wood, and if you drive that wedge hard enough and deep enough, eventually the wood will split. He was teaching me, when I was 16, got a car, how to change a flat tire. I got the lug wrench, and I put it on the lug nut, and I didn't have enough force to, to loosen it. So he says, son, you see that pole over there? Yeah. He says, get it. Now put it on the end. What you're doing is you're lengthening the lever, and lever, and you have uh, more force you create, now try to loosen it. And all of a sudden, it started to come loose. Well, there was a man who understood leverage more than anyone of his time. His name was Archimedes. And Archimedes said this. He believed a man could move a rock as big as his house if he had a fulcrum a place to place the lever, 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 and a pole long enough and strong enough, and with very little effort, you could move something that was heavy. In physics, it's called the, multiple, the force multiplied. And Archimedes was famous for this quote. Does any remember? He says... Give me a place to stand, and I can move the world. Give me a place to stand, and I can move the world. 1507, a fellow by the name of Martin Luther was ordained into the priesthood. A few years later, he started to have some problems with the theology of the Catholic Church. And in 1517, he took those 95 theses, those famous 95 theses, and nailed them to the Wittenberg door, remember? Which later arrived at his arrest, charged with heresy, and to be burned at the stake. On April 18th, 1521, the day at last came for his trial, for him to appear before the holy 
Emperor, King Charles V, who wanted him to decant his writings. And when he was charged to decant his writings, Martin Luther responded, Unless I am convinced by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for I cannot go against my conscience. To go against my conscience would be neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Martin Luther found a place to stand. And he stood upon the word of God. And God, through Martin Luther, literally moved this world in the great reformation that taught we are saved by faith and not works. And there's a legacy to his action. Just look around. You are legacies to his action. Do you know there's always a legacy to our actions? To our own actions, there's always a legacy. Courage. In the face of fear, Martin Luther found courage. That was based upon a conviction. A conviction that was based upon the word of God. We are starting a new series today called Courage. And for the month of February, we're going to be taking a look at four different types of courage. Today we'll be taking a look at the courage of conviction. Next week, the courage of inconvenience. And then we'll be taking a look at courage of calling, and then the courage of change. But before I go any further this morning, I need to define two words for you that are crucial in understanding where we're going. First, conviction. It's a word that we don't use a whole lot today. I remember we always used to talk about, it's against my conviction. It's against my personal conviction. It's against my conviction. And everything just seems to be, we have no convictions today. But a conviction is a firmly held belief or an opinion. Conscience is an inner feeling, a voice. How many can thank God for the Holy Spirit? An inner voice viewed as an acting guide to the righteousness or to the wrongness of one's behavior. Boy, how many times have you been going to do something and you knew it wasn't right and you heard that little conscious, don't do it. I wouldn't do it. Courage is the place where conviction 
meets compassion. Today, the courage of conviction. Now, throughout the whole month of February, we're going to be taking a look at the 17th verse, of the 17th book in the Old Testament, the book of Esther. And what's kind of interesting about the book of Esther is, number one, we really don't know who wrote the book of Esther, but we can assume from its writings and from its details, it's written by a devout Jew. What's interesting also about the book of Esther is it does not mention God. There's no reference to God. It's written somewhere between 400 B.C. and 460 B.C. We know Esther became queen in 479, so it was written after. And you have to understand the writings of Esther, the time in which it took place, because it talks about the Jewish people in Persia. Well, how did they even get to Persia? Well, if you know Bible history, you know that in 586, around 586 B.C., Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians. And the Babylonians took the Israelites into captivity. And then in around 539, the great Babylon fell. Who would ever think the great Babylon would fall to the Persians? And it was after the Persians captured Babylon overseas Babylon and and had these Israelites there, it was the King Cyrus who let the first exiles, a small group of exiles, go back to Jerusalem under Zerubbabel. 25 years later, another small group of exiles went back to Jerusalem under the leadership of Ezra. But there was a majority of Israelites that stayed in Persia because... They got comfortable. They got used to it. And some even believed that there was a fear of what might happen to them on their journey back to their homelands to establish Jerusalem again. And that's a sermon in itself, to get comfortable to be in a place where God has another place for you. The purpose, the purpose of the book of Esther It just records history. And it talks about God's sovereignty, his loving care for his people, even though they were in a place where they didn't need to be. Now you got to understand the setting. The king of Persia, Artaxerxes, has thrown this massive, massive festival, this, this festival that lasted for 180 days. For 180 days, there was this festival. Now, it's believed that most Persian kings during this festival would, would display their wealth. It was a time to display their wealth. It was also a time to display their majesty and their glory. In fact, Josephus writes, the historian writes, that most Persian kings would throw a big festival right before they went to war to show the people that the king had enough wealth and power to maintain through the times of war. So here it is, a king showing his power, his wealth. 
Establishing the confidence of the men and women before they go to war. And right at the end of this festival, there's a seven-day party. And our text picks it up on the seventh day. Now, it's important to know because for six days, they've been going at it. They've been drinking. They've been having a good time. And in chapter 1 of Esther, starting with verse 10, you know, just feel free to change your position for the reading of God's word for a moment. Would you just stand? After six days, on the seventh day, when King Xerxes was high, was in high spirits from wine. Now, that's just a very nice way to say that he was intoxicated, drunk, feeling good. He commanded his seven eunuchs who served him, Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, that, Abagtha that, that name's not permitted in New Jersey anymore. Don't go there, stop it. Zethar and Carcass. To bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown, in order to display her beauty to the people and the nobles. For she was lovely to look at. In fact, her name means one who is desired or that of beauty. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, don't miss that, command, order, the queen refused to come. And the king became furious and he burned with anger. You may be seated. Now I've often wrestled with why the queen would refuse an order or a command from the king. But if you do your research, some scholars believed that when she was to appear before the king with her crown, that's the only thing she was supposed to be wearing. Or, some believe, that when she was appeared before the king, she was to be wearing her crown, but she was to appear unveiled, her face not covered. Which boils down to her laying down her self-respect. In either situation, the king is breaking custom because it, 
For Eastern women, dignity and modesty were of high value. So he calls her in. Instead of coming, she refuses. She she decides that I'm going to remain a woman of dignity. And I'm not going in just wearing a crown. I'm not going in with my face unveiled. I'm not doing it. Now, remember why this king was having this festival to begin with? To show off his wealth, his power, to develop confidence in all of his men before they go to war. And here is his very own queen who will not obey one of his orders. And he becomes furious and angry. As a result, she puts at risk the palace, her crown, and all that comes with it. She literally risks her life. All because of this unreasonable, undignified, and frankly downright degrading command that is made. And I believe that if he was sober, he never would have made the demand in the beginning. And here's what's unfortunate. It's not a storybook ending where they all live happily ever after. Because the king, at the advice of his advisors, banishes her from the kingdom. He would never see her again. And we would never hear from her again in Scripture. End of the story. Now, from this story, and just studying this passage of Scripture, here are my two takeaways. Number one, Vashti lived according to her conscience. That inner feeling, that voice viewed as an acting guide to the rightness or the wrongness of her behavior. Obviously, the king is not interested in how she feels. All he's concerned is about himself. All he wants to do is show her off and brag, Hey guys, look what I have. And I have to believe that in this degrading request command of the king, I have to believe that there was this inner feeling, perhaps this inner voice that acted as a guide, that that guided Vashti, don't degrade yourself, don't devalue yourself, don't disgrace yourself, don't go out there like a piece of livestock. Now all this, of course, is built and based upon the speculation that The king just wanted her to wear her crown or go out unveiled. But even if she went out fully clothed, we still have a problem. In the book of Jewish Antiquities, the historian Josephus wrote this. Strangers were not allowed to look at the beauty of the Persian wife. 
And so many commentators see Vashti's defiance as a modest and totally justifiable refusal to appear, even if she was fully clothed before a group of drunken men. The king, instead of protecting her, wanted to expose her to shame. Now you can read other scholars will debate her motives. But we don't know a whole lot about her. We don't know about her character. So we can't speak to that. We don't know about the depth of who she was, and we can't speak to that. But here's the fact. Instead of treating her as a person, the king wanted to treat her as an object. And I'm sure all the drunken men around the king were objectifying her. Bring her out! Bring her out! Bring her out! And she refused. That's what we know. She made a decision based upon dignity of her character that was developed through a conscience and a conviction. No matter what the cost. And I'm here to say, Vashti, I'm proud of you. No matter what the cost, you made the right decision. You lived according to your conscience. My second takeaway was this. Vashti refused to compromise her convictions. What is conviction? A firm, firmly held belief or opinion. So enjoyed our Saturday morning uh, men's time yesterday, and I told the story about convictions. I was a freshman at Valley Forge, and it was I was going to come home for a Thanksgiving break, and my wife worked at the AT&T in Bedminster, and she had a friend there that worked there also, and her brother went to Valley Forge also. He needed a ride home. I didn't know the guy, and Heather said, hey, do you know so-and-so? He can look at me. He needs a ride home. He lives in Clinton. You're going to go right past. You think you could drop him off? Sure, no problem. I've told this story a couple of times. So I pull up to his dorm. He gets in my car, and I have secular music playing. I, I don't even get out of the parking lot. And the guy reaches over and turns off my radio. He's a guest in my car whom I'm taking home without even charging or asking for gas money. And he has the nerve to turn off my radio. I so wanted to turn it back on. But there's a certain thing that we respect others' personal convictions. And he had a conviction not to listen to secular music because he was very involved in the world at one time and that secular music would take him back to a place that he didn't like to go to. Convictions. And let me just say this. When you refuse to compromise conviction... There's going to be a price to pay. 
You might have to deal with some ridicule. You might have to endure some embarrassment. You may even lose some friends. But that just comes with the territory. Because it's not worth it. There are certain non-negotiables in our lives that we can't compromise no matter if we lose a friend or be made fun of or become the brunt of jokes. When you live to a higher calling, when you live to a higher standing, when you live to the standards in the Word of God, when you want to live a virtuous life and live according to your conscience and convictions, the unfortunate reality is there are going to be people who will try to cut you down, who will make you fall, who will try to get you to compromise. But I want to tell you something else. The Lord will give you strength for your stands. The Lord will give you strength for your conviction. The Lord will give you strength when you stand upon his word. When you make decisions out of faith and obedience to the word of God. Thank God for the third person of the Trinity who takes up resonance in us. And that small still voice speaks to us through our conscience. Don't compromise. Don't give in. Don't do it. The Holy Spirit will activate courage in you to take a stand to say no. And as a result, no matter what you may forfeit, you'll have something even greater. And that's a peace that you have within yourself. A peace. I once read, conviction is the antidote to a thousand compromises. Conviction is the antidote to a thousand compromises. But it doesn't end there because a thousand compromises will lead you to a thousand regrets. Vashti lived a life that she did not compromise her convictions. And as a result, she was never to see the king again. She got kicked out of the kingdom. And we never hear from her again. But pastor, what happens to all things that works together for good to those who love the Lord? What, what, where, where does Romans 8.28 come in? Well, you know what I'm starting to realize? When we quote Romans 8.28, we quote it from a purely selfish standpoint of what's in it for me. And sometimes the good is not for you, but it's for somebody else. Explain. I have to wonder, and I just wonder, that perhaps Queen Vasti's stand on her conviction, if it didn't have an impact upon another young girl by the name of Esther, who would have a strong conviction for her people. I'm sure 
that Queen Vashti, her example, spoke volumes to a young girl who would eventually become Queen Esther and have a strong conviction for her people. Along with taking physics in high school, I took a class in film. I remember in in class one time watching Marlon Brando play the part of Terry Malloy on the waterfront. And was having a conversation with his brother, blaming Charlie for his current situation. And he says that famous line, come on, I could have been a contender. Could have been a contender. A contender is someone who aspires to reach a certain accomplishment. I'm not going to be disgraced. I'm not going to be devalued. I'm not going to be treated like a piece of livestock and overcomes a great obstacle or to defeat an adversary. Vashti was a contender and she paved the way for Esther to contend for her people. The moral of the story is we all need a contender and we all need to be a contender. Think about that definition. Someone who aspires to accomplish a certain, to to reach a certain accomplishment, to always obey my father's will. I do nothing on my own. I only do do what the Father tells me. Overcame a great obstacle. Lived a sinless life. Conquered the grave. Defeated the enemy. My friends, as Esther had a contender in Vashti, We have a contender in the Lord Jesus Christ who shed his blood in a courageous way to forgive us of our sins so that we could have eternal life. Pastor Bonnie, you can come, and and that's what we're going to do at this time. We're just going to celebrate the Lord's table, and, and we're just going to observe communion at this time. And I pray that throughout this message today, we would get back to holding on to the strong convictions that have been birthed in our hearts through the word of God.